0: Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates, Send in the Clowns, The Phoenix Tube Company, CelebrityTrips.com, The Law Firm of Decolator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and Relish Restaurant of Kings Park. Here are your hosts. Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who was a nationally awarded high school player. He was a college star at Ohio State, where he led the Buckeyes to the 1960 College National Championship and three straight NCAA Finals. He remains the only uh, three-time Big Ten Player of the Year, twice named the NCAA Player of the Year. He won an Olympic gold in 1960. His success continued as a professional, where he's named NBA First Team three times All-Star, NBA All-Star seven times, was a 1964 NBA rookie of the year was named the most valuable player of the 1965 NBA All Star Game, among other honors and awards. He was inducted to the Basketball Hall of Fame as well. It is a thrill to welcome the member of the last New York Knicks championship team, Jerry Lucas, to WLIE Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Jerry.
1: Thank you. Happy to be with you.
0: It's a thrill for us, for yes. sure, because we're big Nick fans. You know, you look back at your career, and you had the rare distinction of winning championships at every single level of competition that you played. High school, college, the pros as well. You throw in the Olympic gold medal that you won in Rome. Your Middletown high school team won 76 consecutive games, earned two-state championships. Your Ohio State University Buckeyes team went 78-6, and won three Big Ten titles, captured the championship in 1960. You look at some of today's players who achieve success, sometimes egos kick in you know, and, and get the best of them. For someone like you, who had nothing but success, how are you able to maintain a, a level head and continue to succeed at every level that you played at?
1: Well, it was vitally important to me to be part of a group, and not to be somebody that stood out above and beyond somebody else, but... Uh, be part of a well-oiled unit that played together and played the game the way it should be played. I, you know, I love the game of basketball. I love I, I love all the ins and outs of it and the important parts of the game and outthinking others and you know doing the things that, that cause your team to be a winner. And, and to do that, I mean, you have you have to there have to be five players, not just one that's predominant in everything you do. And that, that was very important to me throughout my entire career. I didn't want to be I didn't want to be overly noticed. As a matter of fact, I refused to be recruited when I was in high school because I I didn't want to seem much more special than the rest of my teammates. I I told all the, I got the word out, if anybody tried to recruit me uh, prior to the end of my final game in high school, I I will never attend that school. So uh, that was important to me. I think it's important if you're going to have a successful team on any level. Uh, it's important for that camaraderie and for you to work together properly and well and for everybody to feel they're part of what's happening uh, for any success to happen.
0: You know, it's interesting you mention that because a lot of people will say, well, it was a different time. But your high school games were attended by huge audiences. It's it, it pr- pretty much well, like Le- very, very big in right. that part of Ohio. Ohio, yeah. Similar to what we saw with LeBron, you were drawing LeBron-type crowds in high school, Correct. Yes, we, when we, uh,
1: our, our uh, main rival in, in southwestern part of Ohio was Hamilton, Ohio. I'm from Middletown, Ohio, Middletown, Ditties. And there was so much popularity when the two teams played that we always took our games, uh, home and away games, to the Cincinnati Gardens. And we drew over 15,000 people to regularly season games, not playoff games, not state tournament games, but regular season games on a regular basis. We drew over 15,000 people, so there was tremendous interest. Uh, there was you know, a lot of, lot of attention, uh, and you, know, you could have had a lot more of attention, but as I said before, I wasn't interested. In that. I, 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 it just didn't interest me. a matter of fact, when I went to college, uh, I only visited one campus, and that was Ohio State University. When I got to the point where, where my, co- you know, my high school career was over, I felt I knew where I wanted to go, and I didn't want to waste my time, anybody else's time. And Fred Taylor, who was my coach, I called him and told him I'd like to attend Ohio State University, but I let him know that I would not come to Ohio State on a, an athletic scholarship. Uh, I said I'm a student first, an athlete second. Of course, I was a, a straight four-point student uh, because of the learning systems I had created. So um, I, I felt it was important for me uh, to be a, a student before uh, being an athlete.
2: You know, how let's talk a little bit about. What college was like and playing college basketball was like then, and fitting in academics. Obviously, academics are very important to you. You talk today about the one and duds and the kids who shine up for college and basically never go to class. How different was it then, in terms not just for you but for your entire team, balancing academics with what you're doing on the court?
1: Well, we had a, we had a great group of uh, great group of people <laughs> in those years at Ohio State. I think our a cumulative grade point average for our for our basketball team was like three five, so we had we had we, we had very intelligent players. Uh, you know, uh, not not only from an IQ standpoint, but they were they were excellent students, knew the game, understood the game, and made it a lot more fun. And that was important to us. You know, there, as you said, there nobody. I never even thought of playing professional basketball. As a Matter of fact, I didn't want to play professional basketball uh, at that particular time in my life. So it wasn't in the forefront of my mind. I wasn't thinking about it. I was thinking of being as good a teammate I could for the Ohio State Buckeyes and uh, making our team uh, as best as it could possibly be. You
0: know, at 20 years old, you're the youngest player selected for the 1960 U.S. Olympic uh, basketball team. That 60 team, coached by uh, California Golden Bears coach Pete Newell, dominated the competition, winning its games by an average of 42.4 points per game. Uh, the team is considered by many to be the best amateur basketball of all time, team of all time. Um, and it was elected as a group into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 2010. You were originally selected to come off the bench behind uh, future NBA stars Walt Bellamy and Daryl Limoff, but you emerged as a starter during the tournament, and you actually tie Oscar Robinson for the team's scoring lead with 17 points per game. What was that Olympic experience for you like, and as a 20-year-old, you know, traveling with such great athletes and, and playing in Rome? Well,
1: it was a, you know, obviously one of the greatest experiences of my
0: life and the, and the biggest challenge of my life
1: as a basketball player because, uh, as you said, Pete Newell was our coach and he had a sit-down with each of us before, you know, our training camp began and our training camp was at West Point, as a matter of fact. And uh, he told me, he said, Jerry, you're not going to be able to play the the center position. I'd always been a center my entire life. He said, you're going to have to be a forward. He said, we well, we have three other centers on this team, you know, Two seven footers, one six ten guy, and and you're gonna have to be a forward. I said, Coach, I I said I can't learn to be a forward in six weeks. I said, Give me a chance. He said, No, you're not going to get a chance because you're going to be a forward. Well, <clears throat> I I you know I I desperately wanted you know to play center on that team, and it just so happened that throughout training camp it was very difficult. We we had three a days for the first week, so we did a lot of work and worked very very hard. And uh, I, I know I, I worked harder than I probably ever have in my life. And, and then there were a couple injuries that meant if we were going to scrimmage, I had to play a center position, And so I I ended up being the starting center on, on that particular basketball team, on that Olympic team. And Mr. Newell was such a great coach, and he was so complimentary to me. He said after the Olympics that I was the best player he had ever coached in his life. And I was fortunate to, you know, share with Oscar the – uh, the leading scoring honors and of course the leading rebounder in that in that Olympics and I also broke the all-time uh, field goal percentage record for the Olympics I shot 84% from the field during during that entire tournament so it was a phenomenal experience for me you know to stand on that podium hear our national anthem played and have a gold medal hung around your neck, neck, nothing really can compare with that experience.
0: If you're just tuning in and you heard all those achievements, obviously you know we're speaking to Jerry Lucas, NBA (laughs) great. In 1962, the draft was very different than it works today, and it worked on territorial rights. Uh, You're selected by the NBA Cincinnati Royals. You turned down a deal that would have made you the second-highest Uh, paid player on the Royals after Oscar Robertson, but you were also drafted by a pro team in another league by a man that we know very well here in New York, and that's the late George Steinbrenner, then the owner of the newly formed American Basketball League's Cleveland Pipers. Can you tell us a little bit about your interaction with George, uh, a very young, uh, a younger George at that point, and and what that offer entailed? He
1: he was, you know, he was quite younger at that time, (laughs) but... uh, the uh, Cincinnati Royals offered me $30,000 a year to play, and George offered me $40,000. So I was going to sign with George. As a matter of fact, I signed the contract with him, but I never never got to play. The league folded before the season began, and I never had an opportunity to play. And then I had two – this is a very uh, – not very well-known story, but it's a very interesting story. I think your, your listeners might appreciate it. Two gentlemen in the Cleveland area, Howard Marks and Carl Glickman, approached me and said, Jerry, we want to try to get a franchise in Cleveland, an NBA franchise, and we will sign you to a personal services contract and pay you the same amount of money that George Steinbrenner was going to pay you, and we want to use your contract to try to get the NBA franchise in Cleveland. Well, they started negotiating uh, with the Board of Governors, et cetera, and they got approval for an NBA franchise in Cleveland, which which was begun to play in 1963 and the cost of the franchise was going to be $200,000. And I was going to own 25% of the franchise after I retired because a player can't own part of the franchise, but that was part of the deal, which was an incredible deal. It would have been, you know, had it happened. But at the last Board of Governors meeting, they raised the price from $200,000 to 250000 and Mr. Marks and Mr. Glickman turned them down, and they said to me, he said, that money didn't mean anything. He said, we got plenty of money to take care of that. But he said, we thought we had a deal. We we didn't want to work with people who changed deals. We didn't want to be in, in business with somebody like that. So, Or there would have been a franchise in uh, Cleveland in 1963. So uh, Mr. Uh, you know Howard went on to New York, had a he had an advertising agency in New York City. As a matter of fact, he began to man- manage all the money for Kiss, the, the, the music group Kiss, and he he remained. Uh, they both remained lifelong friends of mine. I spent a lot more time with with Howard in New, uh, because he was in New York. while I traveled there to play, etc. And he, they both were lifelong friends of mine. So you're
2: a business major in college, and you're looking at this deal. What was more intriguing to you—the opportunity <laughs> to play basketball? or to be part owner of a franchise in a managerial role, which would carry you further on?
1: Well, you know, once again, I didn't think too much about that. I mean, if, you know, if, if that had have happened, it would have been something that was well in the future, so it didn't occur anyway. You know, so there wasn't, there wasn't really much time to give it that much thought. And, uh, you know, so it never was really something that I dwelt on or, or thought about because it, it never did really take place.
0: So after those deals fall through, you sit out a year and you join the Royals at the start of the 1963-64 season. It didn't take long for Cincinnati fans to see what a great player you were. You averaged 17.4 rebounds in your first year, finishing third in the league in total rebounds behind Russell and Chamberlain, two of the the greatest big men in the game. You also averaged 17.7 points per game, topped the NBA in field goal percentage at, at 527. You're voted a starter in the 1964 NBA All-Star Game, won Rookie of the Year as well. You know, that's a, a lot to accomplish in a rookie season. What's your, uh, and you know, this is, seems silly asking you, you know, what's your most vivid memory? Because You probably remember every single minute of every game, but uh, yeah. <laughs> what is your most vivid memory of that rookie year?
1: Well, just the opportunity to play, the experience, uh, the, the experience of being an NBA player, going through the season, understanding you know how to become an NBA player. I had it was, it was a big adjustment for me really, because I talked previously when, when in our discussion that you know Pete Newell wanted me to become a forward, and I'd never been a forward. And so but when I came into the NBA, Wayne Embry was our center uh, on the Cincinnati Royals, who of course now they're the Sacramento Kings. But I had to become a forward, and uh, my and we played a lot of exhibition games in those days. I mean, as many as twenty exhibition games, which today you know players would rebel and there would be you know all kinds of you know problems. But we played a lot of exhibition games, and my first eight exhibition games were against Bob Pettit, who was one of the greatest basketball players who ever walked the face of the earth. And uh, I mean, he made a monkey out of me the first few games that I played because I'd never been a forward before and of course he was a veteran he was an all-star you know I mean Bob was you know he's one of the top he's one of the top players that ever played the game and so I had to make some real quick adjustments uh, so but but I was thankful that we did play so many uh exhibition games you know that at that particular time because it gave me a time to adjust to become more familiar with playing facing the basket instead of my back to the basket and And then when the season started, I I had, you know, I I really had a lot of experience. If you think about it, I had almost a fourth of an NBA season of experience in exhibition games before we started the season. And then my first game was against the St. Louis Hawks and Bob Pettit. And I, I think I got something like 24 points and 17 or 18 rebounds. So I made the adjustment, felt more comfortable, and was able to... Uh, you know, was able to flow into what needed to be done.
2: And not it's, only did you play a lot of games, you played a lot in a game. You played 44 minutes a game, 45 minutes a game. How important was it to you to stay in the game and not take a rest? Well,
1: I mean, that's what my coach wanted. You know, Jack McMahon was our coach in, in those days. and I mean, he wanted me in the game. So, I mean, I played a lot of minutes. And, course, uh, I was in great shape. You know, I've always been in great shape. I always took care of myself. I never did anything to hurt my body in any in any shape, manner, or form in, 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 in any way. And so I was in tremendous uh, condition, and, and I, I did play many, many minutes. So did Oscar. Oscar played a lot of minutes. Both of us played a lot of minutes.
0: We're talking to NBA legend Jerry Lucas. You know, I, I want to go back to to the, the rebounding because I, I really find that fascinating for a player who, who played center his whole career, shifts to forward. And, and I, I imagine even though you were a center, if you would go back and if the scouting reports existed back in that day, I don't know if any of them would have listed you as either a, a great leaper or an overly physical player, but yet you moved to the forward position You hauled down 12,942 rebounds for an average of 15.6 a game. That is the fourth best career mark in NBA history behind Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell, and Bob Pettit, who you just mentioned. What made you such an effective rebounder at the forward position? What was the adjustment you made that allowed you to be such a dominating rebounder?
1: Well, I didn't have to make any adjustment as far as rebounding because that was my forte. It always was. It's always what I thought about when i when I played in every basketball game I ever played. My first thought was about rebounding and not scoring points or anything else. I wanted to get every possible rebound that hit the you know that went up there. That's just the way I thought. and uh, I, mean, I used my mind incredibly as a basketball player as a young boy. I tried to shoot 5,000 shots every day with a purpose. That's a lot of shots. And I'd shoot 15, 17, 18 hours a day, uh, you know, under lights. And if it was a full moon, I'd shoot well into the night. And, and so, and I always watched where the ball went and why every time it missed. Every time it missed, why did it go there, whether I shot the ball, somebody else shot the ball. And then as I got older, I'd shoot for eight hours and never make the shot on purpose. I would miss shots at pinpoints. You know, I imagined there were the numbers of a clock on top of the rim, and I might miss the shot to the right of number three to make it bounce to the right, the inside of number three to make it bounce to the left, straight on to number three to make it bounce straight back against the backboard, always watching from all those locations where the ball would go and why with you know different arcs and different positions on the floor. So I began to develop kind of a software in my mind. I knew where every ball was going as soon as it left somebody's hand. So I never blocked out i shouldn 't say never but ninety nine percent of the time I never blocked out to me, it was a waste of time. You know Why should I go find some big seven foot player that had no idea where the ball was going? I know where it 's going, and if i'm in a, if, you know if i 'm getting in a position where i 'm flat footed and back- backing into some player i 'm not in an athletic position to rebound, so I was always moving towards the ball. Not flat-footed, holding somebody out of position because I knew where it was going, and I knew I could get there before other players did. And I mean, that's and, and you know, it made me a great rebounder. Wilt and I are the only two players in the history of the NBA who have ever averaged over twenty points and over twenty rebounds a game for an entire season more than once. So, you know, it just that was that was my game. You know, I mean, that that that, that was my game, and and. And uh, it's what I wanted to do. and, And because of all the effort physically and mentally that I had put in, you know, I knew what I was doing and I could get it
0: such a lost art these days as well, you know, knowing where the ball is. I, I, I doubt there's any player today that put as much work into the skill of rebounding than you did. You, know, you continued to post big numbers with the Royals, but aside from the all-star uh, teammate of yours, Oscar Robinson, the Royals n- never really filled a strong enough supporting cast around the two of you to contend for a championship. Someone that had come from such a winning pedigree before that. Did the losing start to wear on you after a while? Well, it's never fun to
1: lose. I mean, we 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 weren't losers. I mean, we had winning teams that we could never get past the Boston Celtics in those days. And you know, we were both in the Eastern Conference, so we always seemed to lose to you know to the Celtics. But we didn't get to the World Championship because we were both in the Eastern Conference and never got there. So obviously, it's no fun to be to lose. You know, I've been a winner my whole life. I I won 153 games in a row before I ever lost a game through uh, through grade school, junior high school, and high school. So. You know, and and uh, you talked about the record at Ohio State. Very, very few losses there. So, but you you know you go into professional basketball, and obviously you're playing many more games. You, you have to lose more than you did on any other level. I mean, it's just obvious that that has to happen because you know you're playing four times as many games every year. So it, you know, that's something that uh, has to happen. You don't like it. It's no fun. But that's um, part of, you know, it's part of it's part of being a professional basketball player.
0: You're moved on from the Royals to San Francisco with the Warriors. Um, you have an injury. You come back from the injury the following year, put up big numbers. And then in early May of 1971, you're headed back to the East in a big time at that time. I remember yeah. this. I remember yeah. the breaking news. Right. You know, Cassie Russell, who was a big-time fan favorite, is right. well fan here in New York for Jerry Lucas. Player. What was your first reaction to becoming a New York Nick? Thrilled. I mean, <laughs> I couldn't have
1: been more thrilled. I was so excited because in those days basketball in san francisco was not very popular at all uh the fans then really didn't know much about the game uh there was not the well today of course the interest is off the charts obviously but in those days it was not and 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 we we played our games in three different buildings and there were some nights when i had to call i even had to call the office say where are we playing tonight you know so (laughs) I mean, it was very unusual. It, it, you know, it was just, it was, it was the most, I, I mean, it was, I, I hate to say it was the worst time of my life in basketball, but it was the most unique and different time in my life as a basketball player. So when I got the call that I was traded to the Knicks, I was absolutely, incredibly thrilled because I knew I was coming to an, a phenomenal team with great players, great intelligence, who played the game the way it should be played. and. And you know when I got to New York and uh, realized all you know all the all, all the things that were going on and happening, and what my who my teammates were and what they were like, it was just phenomenal. I mean, it was a, obviously the premier experience of my professional basketball career.
0: That trade pays very early dividends because yeah. within the first 11 games of the season. Willis Reed gets injured and has gone for the season. You move into the center position. You excel at that position. The following year, Willis comes back, and you two are teamed. In fact, one of the uh, local scribes here in New York actually called it uh, Willie Lucas. Uh, The two of you were a huge part of the Knicks drive for the NBA title, which obviously was capped by the upset of the Lakers in five games. That completed your championship at every possible level. Uh, it, It should also be noted Now, this is very interesting because if I was a GM, I would definitely hire you in some capacity either at your high school or back at your college or for the Knicks because – Neither one of those teams have won a championship since right. you
2: left. Well, um, so, I know. <laughs> so, you
1: know. It's very very <laughs> unfortunate. I, I don't know if I was a jinx <laughs> or what, but high school, college, and the Knicks, and right. none of the teams have won it. Right.
0: Yeah, it's, but, a, it's unbelievable. I,
1: you know, I wasn't interested in staying in basketball in any capacity. You know, my lifelong interest had been in education. The world had no idea what I had been doing. I retired from the Knicks early. I still had several years left on my contract because I wanted to devote all of my efforts to education. I had I had done and you know and so I, and I couldn't work for anybody. If I if I worked for anybody, my time would be theirs. So I realized I had to do convention and teach seminars, and I began to research. For five years, all I did was research. I wanted to know more about every subject of learning. Uh, from preschool through the sixth grade, than anybody in the world. And as I was doing this, I was developing a way to picture everything that needed to be learned because, going to give you a short two- or three-minute seminar, children never have a problem learning prior to going to school because everything they learn has an identity. A parent says that's table, cat, horse, dog, tree, impossible to forget. God's given us a remarkable ability. Every time we think of an object, the picture of it appears in our mind. If I say to you and your listeners, please do not see a zebra in your mind, it's too late. You already saw a zebra. What about a giraffe or an alligator? Impossible to forget items that have an identity. Educators have proven that children from a uh, a knowledge standpoint learn far more prior to going to school than after entering school. And the reason to me is very simple. This gift can no longer be used because everything a child is called upon to learn is intangible and abstract and has no identity. At the eight parts of speech walked into the room where you are now, you can say, oh, there's a pronoun, there's an adjective. I haven't seen those in a while. I've spent my life giving identities to everything that needs to be learned. Forty years of my life have spent doing that, and I'm on the verge now of hopefully I'm looking for the funds I'm going to need to create a website, an educational website that will be known as Dr. Memory's Universe that I guarantee you will totally revolutionize, revolutionize the way we learn and teach Youngsters will never have a problem learning in the future because everything they learn, I've even pictured every sound in the English language, has its own identity. And you can't confuse a hippopot- hippopotamus with a frog because you know what they are and they, they have their own identities. The same thing in the future will happen with everything that a child needs to be learned, all those things that have been nothing but ink on a page in the past, Will have their own identities. And not only that, I've made it incredibly fun with video games and characters and music. And it's going to be remarkable. And that's been the real purpose of my life. And that's why I retired from basketball early uh, to devote my life to making a difference in, in education.
0: I know AJ wants to ask one question about that New York Knicks team as well. But, you know, I want to piggyback on what you just said because it's very interesting because you've actually now spent more time in the private sector as an educator. As a, uh, than you did as a professional basketball player. Which of the two gave you more gratification, and which of the two <laughs> do you feel is your identity?
1: Well, um, I, I believe my identity is, is as an educator. The world doesn't know it yet. They will in the future when the website is created. But that thing that will give me far more fulfillment in my lifetime will be when the educational website is done. For instance, we have millions of young people that don't ever learn to read and write because abstract information does not register in their minds. But they are gifted young people. Think about it. Every one of them knows what a cat and a dog and a horse and a cow and a tree are. Those tangible items register in their mind and can never be forgotten. Let me repeat that can never be forgotten. So, why shouldn't we do the same thing with the abstract information that youngsters need to learn? Let's make it tangible, give it an identity so it could never be forgotten. And so I've already done all that. I mean, the artwork's done. Everything's finished, but it's in 2D. It needs to be transferred from 2D to 3D. You know, Disney, Pixar, feature film, 3D quality. And I have the production companies lined up and the music people lined up. I just need to get the funds to make it a reality. And I'm in the process now of hoping to get that done so this can become a reality and really totally revolutionize the educational process in America.
0: That's a great transition back to A.J.'s right. question, because f- for A.J. and I, when we visualize that New York Knicks championship team, we visualize each and w- every single one of those players, and when we th- see more than just basketball
2: players. We, we see a we all now. I, in doing the research for this interview, I came across a very interesting New York Times from about four years ago, and you're talking about that Nick team, and it fits in learning and everything. It says You quoted saying we had more plays than any team in the NBA because we were smarter and we could remember things. If my teammates couldn't remember them. I teach them how. It was just so much fun. And you talked about how basically you and Bill Bradley, Rhodes Scholar, Princeton graduate, and you of course, Phi Beta Kappa uh, from Ohio State. You said we like to use our minds. We like to fool with opponents. You had your own language you developed. So how did that... First of all, how did that come about and then how did that help sort of translate to what you've been doing now with education, what you learn then and apply it to teaching kids how to learn?
1: Well, that came about because I taught Bill some of my learning systems and how they were how they related to certain things and, and Bill and I were the only one that used it on the mix and we had a lot of fun with it, you know. I mean we really had a lot of fun with it and enjoyed it very, very much. But it really you know, it, and that's about the end I mean, that's about the end of it really. Bill and I had fun and But I I knew every player of every team in the NBA. You know, when I began to play center, I loved it. I loved playing center for the Knicks because it was my natural position. And when a team would come down and call out a play, I would call out one of our plays that was exactly like it because we had more plays than anybody in the NBA because we had the smartest team in the NBA, bar none. And and so we knew every play every team was going to run every time they came down the floor when they called out a play. I mean, I just passed that information on to my teammates. We knew what was happening. About the only time you didn't know what they were going to run was when they came out of a timeout. But it didn't take it didn't take very it wasn't very hard to figure out what they were going to do. For instance, every time we played Boston, they ran a play called Ohio after every uh, after every timeout, and that was one of our plays at Ohio State that John John had you know brought to the Celtics. It's John Havlicek. Yeah, yeah, Havlicek. So we could figure those things out. It wasn't too hard. And, uh, and, and I, I love the intelligence of our team. Not, you know, not, not just from an IQ standpoint, which was there in spades. I mean, it really was. But from, from an IQ, IQ basketball standpoint, knowing the game, understanding the game, how the game should be played, why certain things should happen, no egos were involved, no selfishness was involved, and that's what made the game so much fun for all of us.
2: Is there any NBA team now that comes close?
1: You know, I don't know. I, I, don't, I'm not, I don't watch the NBA closely anymore. I, I really don't. I'm so busy with what I'm doing that I just, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, I, so that's, that's, you're asking the wrong person <laughs> that question right now.
0: Where can people follow the, the growth of this website and any developments that might be happening over the next couple of months and years?
1: Well, you know, I guarantee you, when we start it and we get doing what we're going to do, uh, so they'll, they'll be aware of it on social media. I mean, when that happens, people will know. Uh, I have a son. My, my oldest boy, Matt, works at TNT, and you've all seen his work and don't know it. He's won eight Emmons. He does he does all the work for the NBA, NASCAR, Major League Baseball, the NCAA playoff games, and, you know, uh, NCAA basketball tournament. He's a. Incredibly gifted person, and uh, you know, very creative, and so forth. And you know, I, I hope that he's going to work with me in the future when we start working on our website. Uh, and and I guarantee you, he's told me. He said, "Dad, when the red, uh, website is ready to launch, don't be, don't worry. Through social media, I'll see that everybody in America knows about it. So when the time comes, people will certainly hear about it."
0: We'll do our best to get the word out as well. You know, Jerry, thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, I have to say. You know, initially when I see you, I see seventy-three championship, but now I also do see educators. So you've already made an imprint on 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 my uh, mainframe here, and we actually
2: Mars can go out and start to learn card tricks now.
0: (laughs) Right, I'm going to try to memorize (laughs) the phone book. (laughs) Right, yeah, because I'll never forget watching that as well. But thank you so much for your time tonight. We really, really appreciate it. Nice talking with you. Bye bye. Thank you, Jerry Lucas, uh, Hall of Fame basketball player, member of the last New York Knicks championship team, uh, educator, all of that.